Well, good to see you this evening, and for all of you reader headers, if you'd like to check out Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, we'll be back in the book of Acts. These are some wonderful verses, and uh, I think you'll find them uh, encouraging as you read, and then we'll dissect them on Sunday. And I have to say, I was hoping we would get to 1 Samuel 20 tonight, and we are. So would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Now, last time we were reminded about a subject, and it's been some time, so I'll remind you, that ought to be on our minds every single day, and that is about the greatness of our God. Specifically noting that while Saul had laid plans to kill David, God had other plans for David to make him actually the king of Israel as the man after God's own heart. Well, Saul's plans did not prevail over God's plans, and that's true for us today as well. Amen? Now, there were a series of twists and turns in our text, and we left Saul in kind of a rather bizarre situation and even a rather unusual text. He was in the city of Ramah at Naoth, which was the house of the students of Samuel who were being taught by the great prophet. Now, the last verse told us in 1 Samuel 19.24 that he, Saul, stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, we mentioned last time that the word naked can mean to strip down to your undergarments or it can mean exactly what it says, naked. And we don't know what the purpose of the stripping off of the clothes was necessarily other than very possibly to humble Saul before Samuel and before the Lord. Now, we don't know for sure, but what we do know for sure is this. In Proverbs 21.1, we're told the heart of the king or the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God is in control. Amen. He is sovereign yet even today. Saul had his plans. God has his. And Saul liked his own plans better. And while Saul was king, he was a man who was filled with envy and pride. And his life read like a checklist of things that the Lord hates, as we talked about last time. Yet, in the midst of all that, in the midst of his pride, in the midst of his efforts to kill David, God remained in control. And the fact was, no matter what Saul's desires were, no matter what his intentions were, if the Lord says, strip down and prophesy, then that's what you're going to do, whether you want to or not. Amen? Because our God is all-powerful. And believing in him doesn't make him exist or so. He is the authority over all creation and what he says goes. Now, our text tonight reminds me of something that the Lord said both to and through Isaiah to Israel. In Isaiah 5, 3 to 4, the Lord said, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. Vineyard being a reference to Israel. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Now, we have to remember, as we had mentioned before, that from the time that the Lord said that he had rejected Saul as being king to the uh, anointing and appointing of King David as king, some 25 years would elapse before the transition. Now, the Lord was obviously giving Saul time to repent, and yet... Even after we saw the encounter in Ramah, where the Lord tells him to strip down and prophesy, Saul picks right back up where he left off and plots to kill David. Now, we could say, as Isaiah wrote, what more could the Lord have done when time and again, he not only spared David's life, he spared Saul's life for trying to take David's life. But Saul was trying to kill the man after God's own heart, whom God has chosen as the king over Israel. And Saul was shown abundant mercy for a quarter of a century. And yet, wild grapes continued to sprout from Saul's envious, prideful, jealous, and rebellious heart. 
Now, our focus tonight is not going to be on Saul's continuous and growing envy and pride of David, but rather we're going to hone in on the relationship between Jonathan and David. Now, I think this is well introduced by Proverbs 17, 17, where we're told a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for what? Adversity. Now, our title and topic tonight is a bit lengthy, but I think it's timely. And what we're going to examine tonight through the events in 1 Samuel 20 and what we're going to glean from it is simply, and here's our title, A Survival Guide for Perilous Times. We're going to package a survival guide for perilous times. Now, Paul prophesied in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days perilous times would come. And I would say they are upon us. Amen? Now, there was a report released last month commissioned by the British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, that showed that anti-Christian hostility is not only spreading geographically, but also in severity, coming close to meeting the very international definition of genocide. And Juliana Timorese, the president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council and senior fellow of the Philos Project, told America's News Headquarters, or on Fox News, that ISIS has been committing genocide. She said, while Sam Brownback, the United States ambassador at large for international religious freedom, has done a lot, but there's a need for a lot more. She went on to say, I believe the death of most people suffering today is truly because of political correctness. Because the world turns a blind eye to this, and when we are politically correct, we are sympathizing with the terrorists that are destroying communities and erasing history. Now, this report comes on the heels of what we just saw on Easter, the Sri Sri Lanka massacre by Islamic extremists targeting churches and hotels, killing 250 and wounding over 500, which Hunt said has woken everyone up with an enormous shock. 80% of all religious persecution is being done to Christians worldwide. And according to Open Doors USA, a watchdog group of Christian persecution, one out of every nine Christians worldwide is being persecuted. Are we living in perilous times? Do we need to know how to handle ourselves in such times? And David and Jonathan are going to run a covert op, so to speak, to avert Saul's efforts to kill David. And we're going to learn a few things from their plans and the implementation of it about how to react in a world of growing persecution in the perilous times in which we live. I've got a big chapter, so let's jump in and start with verses 1 to 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 20. So would you stand and read them with me, please? 1 Samuel chapter 20. Let's look at verses 1 through 9 and begin to build our survival guide for perilous times. Verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for I knew certainly that evil was determined, if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you. You may be seated. 
Now, thinking back on our last chapter and the very strange verse it ended with, David takes advantage of the moment of uh, Saul prophesying before Samuel all day and night. And he flees from the house of the prophets in Ramah and seeks out Jonathan in frustration, asking him, what exactly have I done? What is my sin against your father that he seeks to kill me? Jonathan replies, you're not going to die. My dad tells me everything before he does anything. And then David says, wait a minute, John, your dad knows all about our friendship. And as the Lord lives, there's the oath that he took. There is but a single step between me and death. And then we see that David is unsure if something had changed with Jonathan, as we see in verse eight, where he says, if there is sin against your father that I have committed and you're in agreement with him, then just kill me yourself. That was the implied meaning of his statement. And Jonathan tells David in verse 9, listen, I didn't know my dad was coming to Ramah to actually kill you. If I would have known, I would have told you. Now, after this, or between these things, I should say, the two men begin to strategize what is truly on Saul's mind and how to know it for sure concerning David by watching his response to David's absence at the new moon feast. Now, this was something that occurred every month. It was mandated in scripture. In Numbers 28, 11, we're told that the beginning of your months, each and every month, remember they run on a lunar cycle, beginning with the new moon, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Now, David would be expected to be there as the one who played soothing music for the king, married the king's daughter, And he would certainly be missed at this sacrifice and the feast held at the beginning of each month, signaled by the new moon. Now, we're going to look at Saul's reaction in a moment. But the fact that the two men formulate a plan in the face of an imminent threat tells us that we should have a plan, too. Now, here's the first thing I think we need to recognize about surviving in perilous times. Now, here's a very practical point of application that we need to consider. Listen. Divine protection does not exclude personal planning. Divine protection does not exclude personal planning. As a matter of fact, we might even say that this is how divine protection often works. After all, do we not have the mind of Christ? Yes, we do. Do we not have the Holy Spirit within us? Is not discernment among the gifts of the Spirit? And is not common sense part of discernment? Thank you for that one yes. I'll take more. Now, Matthew 10, 16, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, being wise as serpents when sent out among the wolves implies using common sense in perilous times. And David and Jonathan recognized that the feast of the new moon was an opportunity to test the water, so to speak, concerning Saul's attitude towards David. And we also need to note that their plan wasn't, David, let's go ahead and send you to the feast and see if Saul tries to kill you. That's not a common sense plan. Saul had already thrown a javelin at him some three times, and they were using just common sense in their approach to finding out Saul's disposition. Now, I want you to think about this as well. Nehemiah was doing the Lord's work. Nehemiah was doing the Lord's work in the face of growing opposition. Nehemiah was doing the Lord's work in the face of not just growing opposition, but also false accusations. He was doing the Lord's work in perilous times. Now, in Nehemiah 4, 7 to 9, we're told it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very what? Angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we did what? We set a watch against them day and night. I want you to pay attention closely to what is said here. It says they prayed and set a watch. It doesn't say they prayed and sat and watched. They set a watch. They took action. They had a strategy. They had a plan. Common sense was employed as part of the divine protection. Now, that's not to say that all common sense measures and discernment will allow us to avoid persecution. 
There are times when obedience to the Lord is going to, at least seemingly, defy common sense. But it doesn't defy it from God's perspective. He knows exactly what he's doing all the time. Now, take Daniel, for example. The satraps and governors had plotted against him and found they weren't going to find any accusation against him unless it was concerning his religion and his God. So they tricked the king into signing an ordinance that said no one can petition any god but Nebuchadnezzar for 30 days. And no one could petition anyone but him. Now, in Daniel 6.10, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times in that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his what? Custom since early days. Now, think about what this tells us. He threw open the windows. He faced Jerusalem because the Lord had said to Solomon, I will hear prayers made in this place, and my name will be there perpetually. So, as a practice, he opened the windows of his upper room. He faced Jerusalem, and he made his prayer. Now, did opening the windows make Daniel's prayer more effective? Did he need to open the windows for God to hear it? No, of course not. He certainly could have prayed with the windows closed, but I want you to consider this. If he had decided, you know what, I'm going to hide from these guys, going to keep the windows closed, or I'm just going to obey the ordinance that the king has signed or the decree that he has signed, and I'm just going to skip prayer for some 30 days. Do you know what would have happened if Daniel would have closed his windows or if Daniel would have skipped prayer for 30 days? Well, I'll tell you what wouldn't have happened. What wouldn't have happened is one of the most famous events in all of Scripture that even non-believers know about, and is Daniel in the lion's den. Why did he wind up in the lion's den? Because he threw his windows open and he prayed. Did the Lord protect him there? Well, of course he did. Now, it may defy common sense, but again, our point is, is that there's a lot of practical aspect to divine protection. God has given us wisdom. James says wisdom that comes from above is first pure. It's an undiluted or unpolluted, I should say, wisdom. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are certainly exceptions to our point. But the fact is, most of the time, God is going to call us to pray and set a watch. Pray and pay attention. Pray and be ready and cognizant of the things going on around you, of our circumstances, our surroundings, just as David and Jonathan devised a plan to see what only God can actually see. And that is what's going on in the heart of the king. Now, let's keep moving on and look at verses 10 through 23. We've got 42 to cover tonight, so we're going to move pretty quickly. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped. What am I reading from chapter 19 for? I'm sorry. You know, that was a really good verse. Let's just keep reading 19. I'm sorry, pick it up in chapter 20, verse 10. Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness, when I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is a good, uh, there is good toward you, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I was still, uh, while I still live, that I may not die. But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying that the Lord required at the hands of David's enemies. Now, Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you had stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone of Ezel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I had shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, 
Go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and not harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between me and you and me forever. Well, got to correct something before we move on. When Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, it was Darius who was king, not Nebuchadnezzar. And the statute was according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not change. I wouldn't be able to sleep tonight if I didn't correct that. So there you have it. Now, the strategizing continues between the two kindred spirits. As David says, how am I going to know your father's reaction? Jonathan says, let's go out in the field, preferably out of, or presumably out of earshot of any hidden spies of Saul's, and says, the Lord God of Israel is witness. In other words, he's saying, I vow to you in the name of the Lord that I will let you know after I've checked out my father's reaction. If it's good and I don't tell you, may the Lord deal harshly with me. And the same goes for me if my father's reaction is unfavorable. Now, Jonathan then reveals clearly that he realizes that David would indeed someday be king. So Jonathan made a covenant with David and David made a vow to Jonathan and the two men would be each other's defense and that David would become Jonathan's family. Uh, Remember Jonathan's family when he became king. So clearly Jonathan is well aware that the Lord had rejected his father and David was the man after God's heart. Now then the plan is laid with the arrows to the side or beyond. The young man is employed unknowingly in the scheme. Now this is interesting in light of what David would later write in Psalm 101 concerning close relationships and those who would serve in his household. He would say in Psalm 101, 6 and 7, and I have to wonder if he wasn't thinking about this relationship he had with Jonathan, where he said, My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, meaning a mature or complete way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. David obviously learned and valued a relationship like he had with Jonathan. Now, the painful loss of the relationship to Jonathan's death, as we'll see in uh, coming chapters, certainly had an impact on him. Now, this is a bit of a side note, but not really, once we consider our point. First, we need to note that David and Jonathan worked through a loyalty issue here and came through with their relationship not just intact, but stronger than ever. David was wondering where Jonathan actually lie whether it was with his father or with him. He'd already professed a loyalty to David. They'd become kindred spirits. But the fact was, there was a question in David's mind. He wanted to know, listen, if you're with your dad, just kill me here. There's no point in even taking me to him. Now, Jonathan says, if I knew that is what my dad was up to, I would have told you. I would have told you. I didn't know he was coming to Ramah to kill you. And then after this, these two men exchange a plan or devise a plan to keep David safe, a plan that should have kept Jonathan safe as well. And it didn't expose the young servant boy or put him in harm's way. They even formulated a code through which Jonathan could safely let David know what was in Saul's heart through the placement of the arrow shot into the field. Now, I wanted to bring this up because this is a reality concerning perilous times and it's one of the enemy tactics and we need to have it within our survival guide and it's just this it's a point of recognition listen tonight satan will always exploit perilous times by trying to sow discord between god's people satan will always exploit perilous times by trying to sow discord between god's people and this is rampant today we are definitely in perilous times amen We just talked about the growing persecution, specifically of Christians. Christians are the largest religious group being persecuted in the world today. This was reported, as I mentioned, by Fox News and others and these other uh, agencies that monitor the killing of Christians. We live in perilous times and the enemy is trying to divide us. The enemy is trying to sow discord among us. 
And Satan has divided more friendships and faith-based relationships by exploiting differences and disagreements than we should ever have allowed him to. Because we were told by Jesus in John 10.10 that the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. And then conversely, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. More abundantly could be translated as in superabundance or in great measure. Now, Peter would also observe in 1 Peter 5, 8, that we are to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may what? He may devour. This is what the adversary does, and he exploits perilous times. He exploits moment of difficult, moments of difficulty. He exploits the hardships of life and tries to set us at odds against one another, even as we see this loyalty question between these two men who the Bible describes as having a deep love relationship in the kindred sense with one another. Now, lest our minds run away with us, let me add this. Ephesians 5.11 does tell us, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, we're not talking about not dividing from things that are obviously heresy or moral failure. We're talking about what David and Jonathan did in our chapter. David said, if you think your dad's right, then kill me yourself. Jonathan didn't say, how could you say that to me after all we've been through? And after all I've said to you about how much I admire you and desire our friendship, Jonathan didn't go there. He just said, no, that's not true. If I would have known, I would have told you. Jonathan assured David he was on his side. After all, David was running for his life. The last thing he needed at that point in time was some big emotional exchange between he and his dear friend. The more important thing was the two men strategizing against the enemy for the sake of David's survival. And listen, we would do well to remember that the world will know we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. I mentioned to you, and we found out why, as uh, Mir and uh, Jack and Jan Markell and I had been talking about the level of attacks before this conference in Toronto was just unprecedented for all of us. It was incredible, the things that were going on and the attacks that were coming, most of them from within the body of Christ. And listen, we just don't have time for that. We have an adversary to fight, not each other. We don't link arms with heresy. Amen? We don't link arms with promoting moral failure. We link arms together against the enemy. And we support one another and we encourage one another and we don't tear each other down and we work our way through moments where one's loyalty may be questioned by another and we don't abandon one another. We do what's best for the kingdom of God and not for our own self-promotion or causes. Now, we need to remember what our cause is. And our cause is the gospel of Christ. And we're not always going to agree with one another. Actually, today I did an interview with Jan Markell on on the radio, and it's going to air, I think, in 10 days or so. And she was reminding me uh, of Walter Martin. Actually, Walter Martin's daughter works for Jan Markell, and uh, her uh, son-in-law, Walter's son-in-law, does as well. And I just, it popped in my head as we were recording a statement that Walter Martin said a thousand times. I heard him say it over the years. He said, we need to agree to disagree agreeably. And listen, there are things that we will disagree about on Bible interpretation, especially matters of eschatology. But we need to remember that our cause is the cross of Christ. We are here to advance God's kingdom. Amen. We're all different. We're different personalities. We have different likes and dislikes and tastes and flavors and all these other things. And the things that people are arguing over oftentimes are so ridiculous and needless. All they are is playing into the enemy's hands. So discord amongst the body of Christ. I have heard so many things over the years about worship music. It's very uh, frustrating to hear and deal with this issue over and over and over and over. Listen, worship isn't about the style of music. Worship is about exalting God's name through song. 
Now, your preference may be the piano, the organ, and the choir. Somebody else may prefer the band and the, the louder music and all that stuff. But it's not the style of music that matters. It is the glorification of God that matters. And there's so much division shown over these ridiculous things. We need to learn the lesson from what's in front of us. We have our disagreements. We may question one another at times, but then we link arms and we advance God's kingdom for his glory. Amen? Now, where did that soapbox come from? I don't even... Let's keep reading before we get into trouble here. Verses 24 to 33. Now, I am going to read from chapter 20. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan rose, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him, he is unclean, surely he is unclean. And it happened the next day, and the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come up to eat, either yesterday or today? Notice he can't even say David's name. So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family as a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Saul said, I get it. I understand. Good plan. No. Then Saul's anger was aroused against who? Jonathan. And he started, and I'm paraphrasing, he started talking about his mama. He said, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to do what? To kill him. By which Jonathan... <laughs> Sorry, I think this line is kind of comical. By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. I'd say that's a pretty significant sign. Now, the men implement their plan. Saul remained silent on the first night, assuming David was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for some reason. And Leviticus 22, 5 and 6 reminds us that at this very type of feast, whoever touches any creeping thing by which he should be made or would be made unclean or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until when? Evening and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. Now, The interesting thing about this is it tells us that Saul actually knew the law, even though he didn't obey the Lord, at least when it wasn't to his advantage or liking. He also knew that David's ceremonial uncleanness would only last, according to Leviticus, for a single day. And when the evening came, a new day was dawned or born, and a washing of the body with water would remove the uncleanness. And the second day... David should have been at the feast if that's what was going on. So now he couldn't hold his tongue on the matter. And he asked Jonathan, where is the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite? Now, commentators are divided on the issue as to whether or not David told Jonathan to lie on his behalf or if David actually did go to Bethlehem. It seems possible verse 24 uh, gives us our answer for David was in the field. He actually... Uh, hid until uh, with the new moon when it had come, and the king was sitting down at the feast. Now, Jonathan's explanation is met with Saul's rage. And Saul resorts to insults about Jonathan's mother, which would be to the shame of the son in that culture. And then he says to Jonathan, don't you understand that as long as David is alive, you're not going to be king. Now, Saul seems to know that David was not in Bethlehem at all because he gives Jonathan the command, go get your friend and bring him here and I'll kill him myself. And Jonathan responds with the same plea that he offered in verse or chapter 19 that was calming to his father when he said, 
what has David done to you? And in the previous chapter, he said, hey, you rejoice when David killed the Philistine. And what has he done to you now? However, this time Saul is not calmed by the words of his son. He is enraged by the words of his son. And he throws his own javelin in an effort to kill his son. Now, James tells us in 3.14 to 18. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and what? Demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. It is unpolluted. Then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do we not see these two contrasting sources of wisdom here between Saul and Jonathan? Jonathan is trying to make peace. Saul is earthly, sensual, and his actions are demonic. And he is filled with envy and self-seeking and confusion and every evil thing are present. Jonathan seeks to reason with his father. Saul's hearts and intentions, therefore, revealed in his bitter and envious reaction as he is unwilling to yield to the fact that the kingdom had been taken from him according to the word of the Lord through Samuel because of his own doing, and he was responsible for his own demise for continually disobeying the Lord. Now, this leads us to our next tactic during perilous times, and it's timely and relevant now, I believe, like never before, at least in our country. Now listen, this is simplistic, but it's uh, applicational for you and I in everyday living, especially now. Listen, when rulers are in the wrong, we don't stop doing what's right. When rulers are in the wrong, we don't stop doing what's right. Now we're certainly not condoning lying, if that's what happened here. But our point is based on what Jonathan said to Saul about David. Saul was wrong. Jonathan said so. What has David done to you? Why are you trying to kill him? You have no justification for your actions other than earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom. The kingdom had been taken from Saul, and therefore it had been taken from Jonathan in kind. And Jonathan had accepted the fact that Saul couldn't come to the place of accepting. And listen, he didn't join the ranks with his rebellious, sinful father. Jonathan held fast to what the Lord had spoken through Samuel, even though what the Lord had spoken through Samuel impacted Jonathan's own future personally. And in standing up for it, it even put his own life in peril at the hands of his own father. Now, Jesus said in John 12, or Luke 12, rather, 11 and 12. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities... Do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, several things we can observe from this, including the fact that Jesus says when. He doesn't say if. He says when they bring you to the synagogues, magistrates, and authorities. Now, these are the religious rulers, the political authorities. And the second thing is that what we say in such times is going to be consistent with the word of the Lord. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Who is the inspirer of all the authors of scripture? All scripture is given by inspiration of God or God breathed. And we need to remember that whatever the Holy Spirit inspires us to say is never going to contradict the written word of God. And listen, when the political climate changes in a country, We don't change. We hold fast to the word of God. When rulers say we have to disobey God or change what we believe, we don't do it. When we're told we need to redefine marriage and be a tolerant person, we don't redefine marriage. God created marriage. God has defined marriage. Marriage is between one man and woman, and there is no other definition. Even when we're called bigots and haters for our biblical position on sexuality, we don't change our position. We stand fast on the word of God. And Jonathan knew what the will of God was, and he knew his dad's behavior was wrong, and he stood his ground. He protected David, and a spear was thrown at him for doing so. And we, too, will be hated by all for Jesus' name's sake. But we don't change what it is. 
that we believe or what the word says, because things are changing in our country and even in our government and the governments of the world. Even when your ruler is your dad, we don't stop doing what's right. We honor the Lord above all else. Thank you, Mike. Anybody else want to get in on that? Amen. Now, let's wrap it up with 34 to 42. So, Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the appointed time with David and a little lad was with him. Then he said to his lad, Now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is the arrow not beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave him his weapon, gave the weapons to his lad and said to him, Go carry them into the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David rose from the place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. On the third day of the new moon feast, Jonathan went out into the field with his bow to signal David. There'd be no way for Saul to know what was going on, even if he watched these actions, and he certainly would be. But the word about Saul's intentions was not favorable in that he was going to attempt to kill David. Jonathan sends the signal, communicates through the flying of the arrow beyond the lad and beyond David, telling him that he was to flee and that all was not well. Jonathan instructed his armor bearer to go pick up the arrows he'd shot, then take the things into the city. And when the boy's gone, David and Jonathan meet and talk. David's life is in danger from here on out. He's going to flee from Saul, but before he does, he and Jonathan make a covenant together. We're going to see that Jonathan in coming chapters kept his part of the covenant. He was faithful and true to David, even to the very end of his life. David was also true to the covenant in that he was faithful to Jonathan, even after Saul and Jonathan were slain by the Philistines and their headless bodies hung on the wall of Bethshean. David comes to the throne and traditionally and for his own safety, normally you would exterminate every member of the house of Saul or the former king. Now that means that if Jonathan would have had a son, he should have been killed. And Jonathan did have a son. We're going to meet him a little bit later on. His name is Mephibosheth. And he was a crippled boy. And when Saul and Jonathan were slain, a servant took the boy and hid him. David sent for him asking if Jonathan had any children and made good on the covenant. He found the boy, brought him to the palace, put him at his table, fed him and cared for him and honored the covenant that he had made with his beloved friend. David bowed three times before the man. They gave each other the customary kiss on the neck and then wept. And sadly, these two great men of a kindred spirit would only meet one more time after this, before Jonathan was killed. Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four and 28 says, From the, the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and the day I've been in the deep, and journeys often in what? Perils of waters, and perils of robbers, and perils of my own countrymen, and perils of the Gentiles, and perils of the city, and perils of the wilderness, and perils of the sea, and perils among false brethren, and weariness and toil, and sleeplessness often, and hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness, Besides the other things, I don't know what possibly else could have happened to him, but there were others. What comes upon me daily is my deep concern for who? For all the churches. Paul knew a bit about perilous times. Paul knew a bit about perilous circumstances. 
He'd seen the enemy sow discord in his own ministry at the departure of Barnabas and John Mark. He'd experienced the persecution of the rulers of his day, and yet he remained committed and even burdened to his call because like Jonathan and David, he loved God and he loved God's people and wanted to see them flourish. And Paul's actions in light of all he experienced and the tearful parting of these two men who were kindred spirits give us our last survival tactic, which is really the balance of our previous point, and it's just this. Listen, if we're going to make it through these perilous times, we need to add this to our arsenal. Do the right thing, even when the right thing is a hard thing. Do the right thing, even when the right thing is a hard thing. The word of God divides families. Jesus said a man's enemy will be those of his own household. And sometimes when you take a stand in marriage for these days, you're going to have family members who are angry with you. Sometimes when you take a stand today for moral purity, you're going to have people that you know and love and work with and care for turn against you. But listen, even when the right thing is a hard thing, we still do the right thing. We still Are you here tonight? We still do the right thing. Now, it's clear that the Lord was central in the relationship between these two godly men as their parting words were those of a covenant blessing of go in peace in the name of the Lord. It was God who was central in their friendship and their shared love of a great God was what caused them to have this depth of relationship. It would have been easy for these two men who were in the right to plot against Saul, to seek his overthrow. Jonathan had been, we're told, in fierce anger against his father. And David was now, in essence, a fugitive, banished from his own kingdom, from his own people, and from his own family. Yet, though the right thing was a hard thing, they did the right thing. Ecclesiastes 4, 12, and 13 reminds us, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is often quoted in a marriage ceremony, and rightfully so, presenting the Lord wrapping himself around a married couple in his name. But listen to what the next verse says. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. This was Saul. He wouldn't listen to counsel, even from his own son who loved the Lord. But because the Lord was central in their friendship, the bond between these two men was strong, and it was a covenantal bond. They were better men than a foolish king who wouldn't heed even the admonitions through the words of his own son, which were actually the words of the Lord. Psalm 112, 1 through 8 says, Praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire on his enemies. This anonymous psalm very well could have been authored by David as there are so many similarities to this scene in front of us and his life experience. And listen, we are living in the perilous times that Paul predicted. We're living in a time where people are lovers of themselves, where people's are ha- people are haters of God. They're headstrong, haughty, proud. They're disobedient to parents. They love and practice evil things and protect and promote them. This is the season of life that we live in. And therefore, we need to be wise in our decisions. And not just sit back and say, the Lord is our defense. We don't need to do anything. We need to pray and set a watch, not pray and set and watch. Now, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. So we don't let him sow discord among us. And when he seeks to exploit Us and our relationships in perilous times, we remain steadfast even as we agree to disagree agreeably at times. And we do the right thing even when rulers are leading in the wrong direction. And we do the right thing before God when it's actually easier to do wrong or retaliate. Now the fact is, let me remind you with this concluding thought, 
Jesus is coming soon and perilous times are going to end. We are going to forever be with the Lord in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And the fact that we live in the times that we do is another reminder that the Lord is coming for his church. Because Paul identified the season of history we're now in as perilous times. And then he gave a list of character flaws in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And we indeed can see them all happening all around us. So we need to be wise. You know, we have to understand that God has given us the mind of Christ. And we have discernment as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we just have to use good old homespun wisdom when we make a decision as to what we deal with or do in a season of personal attack, like David was under. We don't follow the influences of the world. We don't follow after the things that the world is trying to force us into and make us decide against what the word of God has said. But these are the doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits of the last days that we see happening all around us. And sometimes when we stand for the word of God, and we do endure sound doctrine, it's going to make enemies of people who are even very close to us. But we do the right thing, even when the right thing's a hard thing, just like we see with these two men of a kindred spirit based on their shared love for the Lord. Jesus is coming again. Amen. 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 And Father, we thank you that we finally got the... First Samuel 20, and we thank you for the lessons we've gleaned from it. And Lord, help us to be people of prayer, but help us also to set a watch. Use common sense in our dealings with those things happening around us. And Lord, help us not to be opening doors for the enemy to sow discord on matters of interpretation or just particular style of worship or any of the other things that are so sadly misrepresenting what you've done in us to the rest of the world. And Lord, help us not to be ignorant of what is happening with world leadership today as we see so many leading into the globalism that the Antichrist will someday rise to power and rule over as the singular leader of the whole of the world, empowered by the dragon, the devil, and uh, proclaimed by his false prophet, inspired from the same source. And Lord, help us to do the right thing, even when it's a hard thing, even when it creates adversaries, even when it creates enemies. Lord, help us to do what is right before you, no matter what, even as we see here with David and Jonathan being such a wonderful example. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the insights we can glean from every page. And we're mindful of what Paul would write to the Romans, that the things that were written before, Romans 15, 4, were written for our learning. Thank you. We had things to learn tonight from this very ugly scene exposing the dark heart of a king who was not after your own heart, but after his own. We thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Again, it's a great time to be alive. We're living in the season of history that I believe is the last generation before the rapture, when the Lord has the angel sound the trumpet, a dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain will meet them in the air and forever be with the Lord. i got to say, it just doesn't get any better than that. And that could happen at any moment. And we'll be translated in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. And the nearness of his return, or us meeting him in the air, indicates things are going to be pretty tough on the earth. Let's toughen up. Let's quit fighting with one another and fight the enemy, the devil. Roaming the earth, desiring or seeking those whom he may devour. Amen.